0: Um, the Apostle Paul's letters don't really develop a theology and practice of the table of the Lord. I wish there was a chapter, theology and practice of the table of the Lord with kind of a detailed uh, development. But there's not, and God knows why that is. He wants us to understand the context, the biblical context from the book of Genesis, why there is such a thing as the Lord's Supper, But Paul doesn't develop that. Rather, what he does is he does speak of it, but he speaks of it in the context of addressing sin in the church in Corinth. So it's kind of like we're we're hearing his discussion about this, not directly to teach about it, but in referencing the truth the saints should already know and applying that to their situation and confronting them with that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10... It's in this section where Paul is addressing the the saints. He's exhorting them, and he's warning them not to participate in the meals at the pagan temples, but rather to devote themselves fully and wholly to Christ, that they would only participate in the meal of our Lord, and not in those pagan, idolatrous meals. Well, I don't intend to develop in detail... 1 Corinthians chapter 10, but I'm going to begin reading in verse 10 so we have a sense of the context, and then we'll reflect some on the middle section of this chapter. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 1, please give your attention to God's Word. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That's referring to an idolatrous feast. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and... And the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? Let's pray. Our Father, as we give our attention to this passage this morning, I ask that you would help us to more rightly understand your word. And in doing that, might we understand what it is to live more faithfully before you and so taste of richer and greater blessings. Help us particularly as we reflect on this passage to be reminded and to grow in our understanding of what it is that we're about to do as the church gathers around the table of our Lord and together eat and consume, remembering the work of Christ. Bless us, we pray, by your Spirit. Amen. So here in this passage, Paul is teaching that eating meals at the pagan temple has profound spiritual implications, and he's emphasizing this spiritual reality by contrasting eating the meal from the table of the idol at the pagan temple with meeting from the table of the Lord as the church gathers, and so he charges the Christians in Corinth, flee from idolatry. That's the command there in verse 14. What's Paul doing? He's emphasizing that each of these meals, the meal at the pagan temple, at the table of the idol, and the meal of the saints gathered at the table of the Lord, that each of these meals builds a real spiritual bond. It's not a theoretical idea. It's not a reputational issue or could be part of that. But it Something real is happening spiritually. There is a real spiritual bond between the participants. Those we can can see each other, we're in physical reality, between the participants and the non-physical realities of what is worshipped. When they were at the local pagan temple, they couldn't see the spirit beings, the demons. But they were actually entering into some kind of spiritual sharing or fellowship with those demons, those pagans at the pagan temple. And when we gather around the table of the Lord, we are physically present, we see one another, we can touch and prod one another, but you can't see the presence of Christ with us by His Spirit. We can't project an image of the Spirit onto the screen. You can't as it were, prod the Spirit or see the Spirit with your eyes. But the reality of the presence of Christ through His Spirit and the fellowship we have with Him is nonetheless true and real. So as we look at this passage, the first thing I want us to note is how Paul is driving this point and, and what he does to communicate this. Look in verse 16. He says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ. The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? I want to say something about this word participation. In the Greek, it's the word koinonia. Um, You may have heard that word. I don't usually go into a Greek word study, but I think it might be helpful here. Koinonia, this word is often translated in the New Testament, fellowship. So it could be translated fellowship or sharing, depending on the context. Um, And it's the reason we use the word communion. So the Latin word for fellowship is how we get the word communion. So when we say communion, what, what are we talking about? We're talking about this word participation or fellowship or sharing. And what Paul is saying here is there's something unique about this communion or this fellowship or this sharing that we experience when the church gathers around the table of the Lord that distinguishes it from any other kind of meal that the saints may have. There's something about what we're about to do that is unique and particular and purposeful from our Lord. In this passage also, we learn that because of the spiritual reality of fellowship with Christ, there is necessarily a fellowship with one another. We all believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, and we have all been sanctified through the one Spirit of Christ. And because of that, there is a oneness. And there's something particularly expressed about the oneness we have as God's people when we together gather around the Lord's table and eat the bread and consume the cup together. Now, in this passage, Paul is driving the reality of fellowship with Christ and the demands that has, and he applies that to exhorting them to flee idolatry. And um, in the next chapter, what he does is he talks about the fellowship we have with one another, And he says, you ought not to participate in communion in this fellowship with Christ around the table if there is actual disunity amongst yourselves. If you are harboring bitterness or malice or unforgiveness, if there's a stubbornness to seek repentance where causing disunity, then to, to maintain that spirit of disunity and to consume from the table of the Lord is a dichotomy that should never happen. That might be for another sermon in chapter 11. But today our focus is on chapter 10 where Paul is zeroing in on the realities of this fellowship that we have with Christ around the table in contrast to what is happening down at the local pagan temple. So there are so many places, uh, so many ways we could develop this passage. I just want to look at one particular thing briefly this morning and that is to focus on the spiritual reality of this participation, this communion, this sharing. So my first point is this. There is a fellowship or a sharing with Christ which is unique to the time of the table. Down in verse 21, Paul uses the term the cup of the Lord and the table of the Lord. He's particularly identifying a certain kind of partaking, a certain kind of sharing that is distinct from every other kind of meal. Um, This is a a slightly clunky illustration, but I hope you'll grab the intent and not criticize the illustration. So um, I might refer to sharing Aaron's cooking. And when when I say that, the inference is Aaron has done the cooking and she is offering it. She's giving it so that we would share in her cooking. Or you might say something like, um, we shared a meal at the Pierce table. Okay, there's a, a certain kind of meal you had, it was at a certain kind of table, and that identifies the context and the kind of sharing that there was. So, so these kind of ways of expressing ourselves reflects that there's something of the invitation to receive a meal And then there is a sharing of that meal. So to speak of the table of the Lord is to speak of the Lord doing the inviting. He's inviting us to His table. It's the table of the Lord. He's inviting us to His table. He's extending this invitation to us to share in not merely a little snack, but to share himself as we gather around his table. So we recognize there is a uniqueness about this cup and this bread from all other kinds of meal. Now, I'm guessing all the grape juice that went into these cups, um, let me say it differently, that the container from which the grape juice came was not exhausted as it went into that cup. And um, if I were to grab that jug of grape juice with this much from the bottom and we take it home and I serve Will some grape juice, which he likes, and um, the, the, it's just grape juice. It's, it's completely unlike what happens here when we gather. This is a unique time a unique kind of consuming. So we refer to what establishes this uniqueness. We refer to this as a liturgy or a ceremony. Now, you might not you might be uncomfortable with that word. It's okay. I, I don't think it's a bad word. It's just saying what, what is. Certain words are said in a certain context which signify what's occurring. So we have a liturgy or a ceremony that marks out baptism. What we say and the context that happens distinguishes a baptism from a bath, or it distinguishes when you as a family might all jump into a pool together. The liturgy or the ceremony says this thing that's happening has a unique spiritual import and it happens in the context of the life of the church. So, that liturgy or the ceremony, the words we say, identifies the kind of thing that is happening and gives this spiritual significance to what is happening. Now, we don't create the spiritual significance. Jesus told us we should do this, and we do it in obedience, but we realize the uniqueness of the circumstance and the context. So what marks out the table of the Lord as unique? The church gathers. We follow the Lord's command. We follow His example of institution and blessing regarding the cup and the bread. And so as followers of Christ, we remember His redemptive work. Now, we remember that throughout the day, throughout the week. But at this point, we remember His redemptive work in a unique kind of way when we participate, participate in a unique kind of fellowship. So my second point, that the food simply remains The food. So this is a unique time, but there's nothing magical happening with the food. Um, And I just want to reflect on that uh, for a few moments, because I think it will continue to help us think rightly about what is happening as we gather as the church. So So there's a uniqueness of fellowship, but the uniqueness of fellowship does not result around the food being transformed important we have that distinction. Now this is made clear in the larger context of the book of Corinthians. Paul's talking about uh, meat offered to idols. He says if you go to the temple and you eat the meal at the temple and you eat that food, you are fellowshipping with demons in that temple meal. But if not all the meat is eaten and the priests of the temple sell the meat out the back door to the local butcher's shop and you go and buy that meat, it's not tainted meat it's just meat it's the spiritual context of the meat being consumed that causes the element of spiritual fellowship to happen it's it's not magically transformed so the bread that we break together and the cup that we drink is mere food think of jesus the Last Supper, he hands them. It's just normal bread. Uh, it's before he's died. Uh, he's bodily present. There's a distinction between the, the wine that he was serving and the bread that he the unleavened bread that he was serving and his own body. It was just food, it was just bread, it was just wine. The spiritual significance does not lie in the thing itself, it lies in the receiving or the accepting of the food from the table. And this from the table of the Lord and the receiving in faith represents spiritual realities, and we participate in those spiritual realities. The Lord is wise and good, and He knows it's wise and good for us to have this physical act when we physically gather around a physical table and we consume physical things, that this is a wise and good thing for our spiritual flourishing. That these physical things represent profound spiritual realities. Now, our tendency as humans, this is um, maybe a particular problem in 21st century America. I'm just speaking to you here. Our tendency here, 21st century North America, is to consider reality as only that which is physical. But we must allow scripture to shape our perception of reality. That what we consume physically is real and represents what is real spiritually. There is really something of spiritual import and significance that is happening. We are communing with or sharing in Christ. And so, we see with our eyes, we take it into our mouths, and as we do so, these physical things, real things, help us consider spiritually real things. We can't see the Spirit in us. But as we consume these things, we have these visual realities that we are feeding on Christ. Just as food gives us physical life, the only reason we have eternal life is because of Christ. We have received His life in, and we are sustained as people having eternal life because we have the life of Christ. And that is real and true. I might even say, more real and more true than your physical body. And that's one of the reasons why Paul prays in Ephesians, that the eyes of our hearts would be opened to behold these spiritual realities. And this is one of the ways that God has given to us, to help us stir and to have our spiritual eyes opened. Well, the food simply remains food, that leads me to my next point, and that is that the receiving is not passive, but in faith. It's made clear in the next chapter in 1 Corinthians 11, 24 and 25, words we're familiar with. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. It's, it's not like we just sit here, brains blank, spiritual nothingness happening, and then we get this thing in our hands and we consume it and something amazing happens. There is to be a spiritual, mental engagement in what is happening. It is to be a receiving that's not passive, but in faith. is to be with active engage- engagement. Now, this word remembering maybe is a little confusing. Um, what, what do we think of when we think of remembering? And I'm guessing you all have different shades of... What comes to mind when you hear this word, remembering? It entails the faculty of the mind and of the imagination with belief. Um, I I use the word mind and imagination because I'm thinking of you consider concepts. And the beauty of the way God's created our mind is those concepts emerge with our imagination and somehow we enter into a greater sense of the reality of those concepts, there is a present faith at work. So it's, we're remembering what Christ has done, but it's not like we're kind of merely recollecting. We're remembering what Christ has done, and we are remembering it is for us, it was for us, it is for us, and it will continue to be for us. What has Christ accomplished for us, and what is Christ promising to us here and now, and what is He promising to us in eternity. So I found this word self involving remembrance helpful because it prompts me to think it's not a passive kind of, oh yeah, I remember the idea that Jesus died on the cross. But it's, I'm considering the reality that 2,000 years ago Jesus died on the cross for me, and I am united to him in that reality, and I am presently united to Christ because his spirit is in me. And because he died on the cross 2,000 years ago, and I am trusting him, I have a confidence that forever and ever and ever I will have fellowship with him, and I look forward to that day when all things will be made new. That's a pretty full remembering, isn't it? That's what remembering is. It's a self-involving, self-engaging use of our mind and heart. Let me give another illustration. We might say something like this. Do you remember what you had for breakfast? And if... Okay, I'm asking you. Mental exercise here. Do you remember what you had for breakfast? And your mind casts back, and you can imagine what you had for breakfast. If you didn't have anything for breakfast, um, whatever you had for your last meal, right? Do you remember? Now, I might say to um, a couple, or I'll say to you if you're married. If you're not married, you can enter into this imagination. I might challenge a couple who's having a particular challenge in their relationship, remember your wedding vows. Now, at that point, I'm not saying, cast your mind back to that time some years ago when you sat at the front of a church and you said your vows. What I'm saying is, you made vows that have continuing implications which call you to a present response in reality that has ongoing implications. That is the remembrance that we're talking about here when Jesus says, remember, it's an active, not passive kind of thing. One of the passages, uh, if you turn back to John 6, I just want to mention this briefly because I think it, it is helpful as we consider this, remembering, because I want to kind of fill Fill your minds with content as you grow and exercise what this remembering is. In John chapter 6, in verse 32, I'm going to read it and then make some comments. Jesus says this Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, speaking of the manna that was given to provide for the people of Israel in the wilderness. But my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. Just as the Father sent manna to feed the people of Israel in the wilderness, the Father has sent Jesus to feed His people. But this is on a profoundly different degree. Verse uh, 33, For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. For they said to Him, Sir, give us this bread always." And Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And this passage, I think we have helped to, to you know what are some of the things you might say as you remember. Lord, I remember I was spiritually starved. I was spiritually dead. And I needed spiritual sustenance that I might become spiritually alive And I received Christ, the life of Christ, because he died for me. And it's not like you receive. You become a Christian, exercise faith, receive Christ, and stop exercising faith, or stop receiving, or stop depending on Christ. You receive and you continue to exercise faith, and you continue to sustain yourself the life-giving ministry of Christ through His Spirit. So I I find John 6.32 a a helpful phrasing to keep in my mind, and I often recite those words to myself as we gather around the table. Well, moving on to my next point. So that was, the receiving is not passive, but in faith. But my next point is to guard against a tendency we might have, and that is to put too much confidence or view uh, to, in too much of a heavy way the what faith accomplishes. So I want to say this, that receiving in faith does not create the fellowship. So theologians, and this is maybe a little difficult concept, but I think it's important for us to grasp as we seek to really wrestle with and penetrate the, the richness and goodness that God has for us as we gather around His table. So Theologians throughout the centuries have likened the act of faith in remembering to the receiving of the gospel when it's proclaimed. So it's necessary, in order for us to become saved, to receive the word of God in faith. Yes? Right? We we hear the gospel proclaimed, we hear it, and we receive it, and we say, that is for me. I am a sinner. I need Christ. So the word is proclaimed. We receive it. Faith is necessary for salvation. But the power of the Word to affect change does not lie in our faith. Let me say this again. It is necessary to receive the Word of God in faith, but the power of the Word to affect change does not lie in faith, but in the Word of God that is received. So there is a subjective element and there is an objective element. And that, I think, is a helpful illustration for what happens here as we gather around the table. There is a subjective element, and there is an objective reality. So we affirm that the bread and cup does not change into something other than bread and juice, the juice from the grape. But we also affirm that something more is happening than these elements being a bare memory aid. They are not a bare memory aid. Christ is present with us when we gather around His table and when we eat together, Christ is with us and He is sharing Himself or we are fellowshipping with Him through His Spirit. There is an objective reality and there is a subjective reality. And in order for us to maintain the Scripture's teaching on this, we need to be careful we don't emphasize one or the other. If we emphasize the objective element and we ignore the rest of what Scripture says, we'll end up with the Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation. You just receive it and something happens to you regardless of whether you have faith or not. If you go to the other extreme, then you say, it is only my faith that creates the effect. And that would not be biblical either. There is an objective and there is a subjective reality. And that leads me to my next point, and that is this, that the fellowship is real regardless of how we feel. The fellowship we have with Christ as we receive in faith the bread and the cup is a real sharing and a real fellowshipping with Christ, though we might not feel it see, our standing before God doesn't depend on how we feel. It depends on the promises of the gospel, the person and the work of Christ in whom I am trusting. And so as we come to the table, we take the bread and the cup as physical embodiments of the promise of the gospel. I receive the bread and the cup. I receive what Christ has done for me in his offering of himself for me and in so doing, a taste of rich spiritual blessing. And so because of the reality, it's not based on how I feel. It's based on the objective promises of Christ and the gospel, and the objective reality that when we gather as his church around the table and partake together, we truly fellowship with Christ in a particular and unique way. One author stated it this way, What gives it its meaning is not your faith or your feeling about the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so it comes to strengthen faith. The sacraments are not dependent on how I feel, and therefore because of this they are able to change the way I feel. One of the things I think maybe we're tempted to do is to say, When I obey the Lord in general... And when I gather around the table in particular, if I don't somehow see something change on my spiritual maturity meter or my spiritual health meter, then it was a waste. Nothing really happened. But that's not the case. God has said this is good for us. Christ has given this to us. And we are to faithfully and obediently partake of the table together, regularly, Year in, year out. And in so doing, we will taste of his blessings. Sometimes it's obvious. Sometimes you walk away from the table and we say, I am renewed in my confidence in Christ. I am comforted in a rich and wonderful way. And other times maybe you go away and you say, I'm thankful. It was good. It was a good reminder. There is some level of encouragement, but I don't feel particularly changed. That does not mean fellowship didn't happen. And it does not mean that was not good for your spiritual growth. Every time you gather around the table as faithful children of the Father, remembering the work of Christ, you receive Spiritual blessing because you are fellowshipping with Christ. We take that objective reality with us regardless of how we feel. So in conclusion, because Jesus Christ loves us, He desires us to be reassured of His love for us. And so He, one of the ways He is established to do that is he has provided this cup and this bread from his table to strengthen our faith in his sure and steady promises, to deepen our sense of his love for us, to strengthen our hope of a yet future time when we will eat with Christ in the kingdom to come. Let's pray.